0: Please take your copy of God's word. Let's turn together to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, which is toward the back of your Bibles. Um, if you go to Revelation and work your way backward, you'll pass through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Jude. Uh, you'll pass by 2nd Peter and get to 1 Peter, or you can go to Hebrews and turn right, James, and then 1 Peter. Uh, but here and for the next six Sundays, we're going to work our way through this letter of 1 Peter under this theme of how then shall we live because each passage of this letter will have to do in some way with how to live the Christian life today. Uh, But this morning before we get into how to live we we need to know what hope that we have uh, that actually motivates how we live in this world. Um, Well this hope that we have is a living hope It's a living hope because Jesus ultimately is our living hope. It's through his resurrection from the dead uh, that we have hope of glory that actually sustains us in this present time, especially in the midst of our difficulties. We'll see all that this morning, I hope, as God opens his word to us. Let's ask him to do that. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do come to you desiring this morning to have our hope renewed. Uh, Lord, we do desire a living hope, not a pastime remembered hope, uh, but a hope that's real and alive and vibrant, a hope ultimately that, that finds its, its anchoring in you and in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would open our eyes of faith this morning, that we would see glorious riches in, in this portion of your gospel. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text this morning is the first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what So, it it's an amazing work of God's providence that we're actually beginning this letter, First Peter, this week, this particular week. As I think y'all know, I, I I tend to plan out my preaching six to nine months in advance, um, and so it was actually last summer when I laid out the rest of the Gospel of John and and realized that I was likely to begin First Peter either last Sunday or or this Sunday depending on how the, the calendar worked out. And so the fact that, that it's this Sunday, it, it really is a work of God's providence because as I think most of you know, I've spent the week in Houston this past week. Um, my wife, Sarah, had her, her third uh, cancer surgery uh, on Monday and it was, it was successful. Both the procedure itself and, and the therapeutic outcomes were, were very, very hopeful and we're obviously thankful for God, to God. It was it was absolutely the right intervention, at the right time. It really was a mark of God's mercy to us. And yet, I have to confess that. By Wednesday evening, as I, I left the hospital and I drove back to our friend's uh, back house where I was staying, uh, Sarah's sister uh, was in town, so I was doing days with Sarah in the hospital, and, and uh, Becky her sister was doing nights. As I was driving back to the back house on Wednesday night, I, I was arguing with God. Uh, you know, why? <laughs> That's what I kept asking. Why? I mean. Why in the world, or what kind of world, does Willie Nelson get to celebrate his 90th birthday? I mean, after all the crap that Willie Nelson's done to his body, like, like how did, why does he celebrate his 90th birthday this past week? And by all human odds, Sarah is not likely to celebrate her 60th. I mean, why, did, why does that have to happen? Well, I mean, why does Sarah have to go through this? I mean, I've known Sarah almost 35 years. I started, we started dating when she was 18 years old. And like, she has known thousands of people. And she has no enemies. Everyone loves Sarah. Why is this happening to her? Why is this happening to us? Why is this happening now that we've, we've kind of moved our children on to the, to the next stage? And why now? Why? And then in the midst of the why, what are you up to, God? I I mean, is there any hope for us? Hope, Hope for today, for tomorrow? Wednesday into Thursday wasn't the best day. Hope for eight months from now when, Lord willing, we'll celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary? Is there any hope for a few years from now when hopefully Ben will be graduating, our last one graduating from college. Is there any hope, Lord, for Sarah to actually hold grandchildren? Hope for beyond that? Where's the hope, Lord? And then as I was arguing with God on my way back to the back house, it, just, it was just silence because there was nothing really more to say. A kind of silence but also a kind of sense of absence, of where is God in this? Now, I know that's not unusual. I know all y'all at one point or another in your lives have experienced something like that where you have argued with God. Uh, In your times of suffering and affliction, you've asked those kinds of why questions You've wondered where the hope was. You've wondered where in the world is God in the midst of all this. Why does he seem so distant and far from you? And so if you're like me this morning, you need this passage. Because friends, this passage bristles and glistens and radiates with hope. In fact, it tells us Christians, those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, it tells us that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a hope that's alive and real, not false and fake, a hope that's abiding even in the midst of our difficulty. And how do we know such hope? Well, it's because of what we saw at the end of John's gospel. It's because Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. And those great realities of the gospel, above all the resurrection of Jesus, means that we we might have a, a real, true, infallible, that is trustworthy, hope. Hope that can sustain you in the midst of overwhelming sorrow, in the midst of, 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 of suffering and difficulty, in those times, as I've experienced, where you've had a panic attack and you've had to go into a closet just to feel the close space so you can calm yourself down. In those times... There's real hope because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And some of you need to hear that this morning because you have been wrestling and right on the brink of despair. You've been asking my questions. Empty and alone, you've felt abandoned, abused, perhaps past trauma. As, fast forwarded into your life and it seemed as though things that were 10, 15, 20 years ago if they're right present with you and you feel the absence of God in those times though you've professed your faith in him and, and you, you know you've never seen him and there have been brief times where you felt his presence if that's you this morning Peter tells you In this passage, this isn't just for his first century readers, those in the dispersion throughout Asia Minor. He says specifically, this is for you. For you, today, right now. Because he points us to the place of real, abiding, living hope. Past, present, future, all come together in Jesus Christ. So then Jesus Christ, the resurrected King, the one who is sovereign we might have true hope. You and me together this morning. In this living hope, it's anchored. It finds its rootedness, Peter tells us, in future glory. That's how this praise section in the letter begins. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This language of blessing God its simply a language of praise or adoration. Uh, according to his great mercy... He has caused it to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You, 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 you get this sense of glory to come here with language of, of hope and resurrection, of, of inheritance in heaven, but this, this this, future glory, and ultimately our hope, well, you have to notice it, it's God's work, ultimately. God is the one who is the main actor here, the one who is working for us, the one who's working in us, through Christ, so that we might have this, this living hope of future glory. Um, in this passage, he works in several ways. He works, first of all, through through his electing decree, the fact that he has chosen to save. In fact, in verse 1, Peter describes us, as well as those to whom he is writing, as as elect exiles. And then he goes on to tell us that each person of the Trinity has something to do with our salvation. Right? He says, he speaks of the, the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit and obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. listen. How comforting and and hope-sustaining it is to know that, that each person of the Trinity is involved in your salvation. That the Father knew you before time began. He placed his affections upon you before there was a world or a time. That the Holy Spirit set you apart, sanctified you for his work in your life. That Jesus the Messiah obeyed both Perfectly keeping the law, but but by going to the cross as well, to dying the death. You dare not die so that his blood might sprinkle you and make you clean. How glorious it is to see the triune God's work for you. You see, future glory, it's rooted in God's working. His work of election, yes, and, and all of these parts of our salvation. But also God's work of regeneration. What is it that Peter says? He says in verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. To be born again to a living hope. It's actually a a notable feature of this letter. Three times Peter will use that language of born again. Here in verse 3, he'll use it again in verse 23, and then again in chapter 2, verse 2, to be born again. So that where our hopes may have been dead in the past, Or where we may have known despair, we may have known darkness, we may have felt felt hopelessness. We may have known the reality and consequences of our sin and sinning, our our guilt and shame. How is there any way forward? How do we start again? Well, if you've ever tried to start over on your own, you know how difficult it is. How, How is it possible for us to really start afresh? Well, not through our working, but through God's working. He's the one, according to his great mercy, that causes us to be born again. He's the one who regenerates us, who makes us new. So that our our hope of future glory, it's centered not in our own working, but in God's. His work of election, his work of regeneration. And these things come to us by his great and ultimate work of of raising Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope How? through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so here it is, the basis of all our hopes. Jesus lives and so shall I, as this hymn writer puts it. Because Jesus has entered into the new life of the age to come in the present. Eternal life, invading the now. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. We we can taste new life now. We can be born again. God is the one who causes the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Paul says in Ephesians 1 is what raised you from the dead. Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but Christ made you alive in him. He raised you. He made you alive. This is God's work. God's work that ultimately anchors your hopes of future glory. A future glory that ultimately is pictured in a great inheritance. What is this inheritance? Well, Peter speaks of it in verse 4. You see it? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, when these, these readers and hearers, when they when they heard this language of inheritance, what did they think of? Well, many of them were, were Jews who, who, who came to see that the promised Messiah was actually Jesus Christ. They would have been well-trained in the Old Testament scriptures. When they heard the word inheritance, what did they think of? Well, the promised land. They would have thought of Canaan, the land to which God's people went from Egypt through the wilderness, over the Jordan River. They, they would come there. Moses in, in Deuteronomy told God's people just that, that that, that, that the promised land, that Canaan was the resting place and the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. And so for an Old Testament believer, for, for Peter's readers, perhaps when they heard that inheritance language, they would have thought Canaan, what we would call Palestine. But friends, what's the true promised land? What's the true inheritance? of which Canaan was simply a picture, a shadow? What, what's the reality? Friends, it's not 200 miles of dirt in the Middle East. It's not. No, the, the, the true promised land is the earth. It's the world made new. Jesus himself said that. When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are the meek, for theirs is what? Blessed are the meek, for theirs is Palestine. Blessed are the meek, for theirs is Canaan. No, he doesn't say that. Blessed are the meek, for theirs is, for they will inherit the earth. They will inherit the earth. A, a, a saying that actually also has its place in Psalm 37, verse 11. And it's, it's not the earth as it currently is, uh, in bondage to decay. No, it's the earth made new. Which is exactly the picture that you get at the end of the book of, of Revelation. With all of its symbolism, all of its strangeness to us, we can all understand how the story ends. Because the last vision, as John has, is of a new heavens and a new earth. And the holy city, heaven coming down to earth. And all that is wrong and evil and sinful and unjust, rooted out And this world becoming the way it ought to be. And we too joining this in the newness of this new world because we will be raised. And our bodies will put on that which is imperishable. Our defiled and corrupted bodies will put on that which is undefiled. Our fading temporary bodies will put on that which is unfading. Don't you see? The future glory is that you will be raised. And you will live in a world that's made new. Surely, this is a great inheritance because it is glory, and it's a glory we don't think much of, is it? We don't. We don't. We don't spend much time meditating upon this future glory. Oh, at, at certain times we do, but not often enough. Over the past couple of weeks, I've, been reading a book by an old English Puritan named Richard Baxter in and, and a modernized and, and amended version, a little book called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. And Baxter argues in that book that what will ultimately sustain us in times of struggle and suffering, and and he had known so much personally because of his health as well as nationally, he was writing in the midst of the English Civil War, what will sustain us in the midst of our suffering is actually more frequent meditation upon heaven, upon our ultimate rest, upon the resurrection of the blessed. The problem isn't that we're so heavenly-minded we're no earthly good, not, not at all. No, we're so earthly-minded that we fail to gain the comfort and hope that we need in the midst of our earthly struggle. You see, Peter knows that. That's why he, he calls us to see here this morning that our, our hopes will be renewed. We will come to a place of living hope when we when we meditate upon future glory. That's what will sustain us in the midst of our present suffering. In fact, Peter tells us that our hope of glory enables us not just to be sustained in the midst of our trials, but to rejoice, to rejoice in the midst of our trials. Did you see that? Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials. That's that's the reality of the Christian life, isn't it? Rejoicing and grieving side by side. Joy and sorrow side by side. Sometimes light and darkness side by side. Where it feels like the dark night won't end, but we periodically have shafts of light that break through. How often it's been over 20 plus years of ministry That I've done a funeral on Friday and a baptism on Sunday. Joy and sorrow. The deep grief and sorrow of weeping with those who weep as they bury a loved one. And then the joy of, of a little one, a little boy, a little girl being brought into our family. And we get to sing, Jesus loves you, this you know, for the Bible tells you so. Joy and sorrow. Rejoicing and grieving side by side. How is it possible to, to hold these things together and not simply fly apart and explode? It's only possible because in Christ, we have a real living hope. Having tasted of future glory, that enables us to be sustained in the midst of our present suffering and affliction. You know, throughout this letter that Peter writes, that we're going to be walking our way through over the next weeks, Peter speaks of, of affliction in terms of, of what our ESV will translate as, as trials, uh, which is a word that could also stand for, for testings. So you might see it as temptation, but, but really the idea is of, of general affliction that actually demonstrates something. And the language here is actually purposefully general, right? It's, he says, you have been grieved by various trials, or if you have the NIV, all kinds of trials which means that we can all find our experience here every single one of us the trial of losing our job the trial of of a massive financial reverse the trial of an unexpected hospital stay the trial of an illness that comes out of the blue The trial of a a child that's turned his or her back on their Christian upbringing. The trial of real loneliness and friendlessness. The trial of an unexpected death of a brother or a sister or a parent or a child. And so many other things besides. But listen, Peter's already told you that, that your hope of glory as a Christian the fact that you have put your trust in Jesus Christ and so so because Jesus died you've died because Jesus has been raised so shall you be raised your hope of future glory actually helps you view your afflictions helps you view your present suffering differently and that in two ways the first thing he tells us here is that is that your living hope in Jesus helps you frame your afflictions in such a way that you see they're limited they're limited what did Peter say? He said, though now for a little while. Of course, it doesn't feel like a little while, does it? When you're going through difficulty, when you're grieving, when you know sorrow and affliction, physical debility, it doesn't seem like a little while. This past week has felt like a month. It just does. When our, when, our, when our days feel like weeks and our weeks feel like months and our months, they feel like years or decades and we wonder what in the world has happened to us doesn't feel like a little while but viewed from the light of eternity viewed from the light of this future glory that's that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading uh, viewed from the light of glory that begins now as Christ has caused you to be born again to a living hope and will extend in through time e- eternal yes in the light of that our suffering is limited it's limited both in terms of time and in terms of duration but it's not simply this peter also helps us to frame our present suffering differently because we've come to know this future hope this future glory we're able to see that our present suffering is actually purposeful i mean peter says that the, the detested genuineness of your faith verse 7 may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In, In other words, your affliction, your suffering, actually is used by God to demonstrate to yourself and others that you really believe this stuff. Right? That's what happens. When you are going through difficulty, when you are going through suffering, when you speak a bold word for Christ in the midst of that, or you simply bear up in a silent testimony that Jesus is enough, you are demonstrating to a watching world, oh wow, this is really true. But you're also demonstrating it to yourself. You're demonstrating to yourself that you really believe this stuff. It is your ballast, it is your anchor, and sometimes, in fact, the purpose is that it grows your the genuine faith that you have. I never, ever will forget until my dying day. My friend Doc Roberts, who was um, down in Hattiesburg, he was one of uh, he owned a, a number of supermarkets throughout Mississippi. Um, I got to Hattiesburg right after his wife Carolyn uh, had a massive stroke. Carolyn lived 14 months, and then she passed away. And I ended up spending a good bit of time with Doc, both as he was walking through Carolyn's illness and then when she died and planning the funeral. Um, It wasn't until after the the funeral, by a couple of months, we were able to sit down and reflect and process what had happened to him. So Doc and I grabbed a, a hamburger at a local joint and we were talking together and he looked at me and he said, Sean, I have to tell you, I'd never want to go through that again. That was pretty much the worst thing that has ever happened in my life, what happened to Carolyn. And then after his pause, he said this, I can tell you this, I've never been as close to Jesus as I am right now. Never has been as close to Jesus as I am right now. What's been, what was striking about Doc's life, Doc passed away two years after that, was that was true. That the, from Carolyn's illness to his death, Others saw and Doc saw the genuineness of his faith that probably would not have been seen as clearly if it wasn't for the suffering he was going through. But that's the case for you as well. It's the case for you as well. God brings affliction and storms into our lives so that our faith might be stirred so that we might know, and others might know the tested genuineness of our faith. One of my favorite pastors from history is a 17th century Scottish pastor named Samuel Rutherford. He said this, he said, I find it most true, I'll get this part, I find it most true that the greatest temptation out of hell is to live without trials. The greatest temptation out of hell is to live without trials, he said. If my waters should stand, that is, if they should be still, never stirred up, then they would rot. They would become sour. Faith is better of the free air and of the sharp winter storm in the face. You see, that this is part of God's purpose for you, that we actually know various trials. And in those times, we would seek the Lord's face, that we would trust in Him and hope in Him even even in those times when we feel his absence i mean that's what peter's honest isn't he verse 8 he says though you've not seen him you love him though you do not now see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory attaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls that's the reality you and i we've not seen jesus we've not seen him in the past we don't see him now and until our dying day we will not see him And yet, we do believe in him, we love him, we rejoice in him, and yet, in the midst of our trials, the not seeing him is where it becomes problematic, isn't it? Because then we feel his absence. If you're like me, as I went through this past week, and was arguing with God and felt his absence, that's when the other voices in the head start up. What if this isn't true? What if all this stuff that I've taught and talked about it, what if it's just not true? What if, what if Jesus was really just a religious teacher? Just a Jewish sage that, that his disciples deified in some way. What, what, what if the Bible really is a collection of, of ancient Near Eastern myths and legends? And what if the resurrection really is just a big con game? something that the disciples developed in order to birth world religion and provided them a motive story that maybe they even talked themselves into believing but didn't really actually happen what if you know if you've if you've had those voices in your head you're not alone i've heard them others here have heard them but but what you have to understand is that this hope of future glory that actually sustains us in in our present suffering it isn't a makeup made-up story it isn't make-believe it's actually rooted in past promises i i think sometimes preachers don't go on to verse 10 i think verse 10 actually helps us have confidence that verses three to nine makes sense for us I mean, peter says concerning this salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Do you hear what Peter's telling you? He's saying the story wasn't made up. This wasn't some kind of make-believe, makeshift myth or legend that that the the apostles somehow concocted in the aftermath of Jesus' death. No, this is rooted in in hundreds and hundreds of past promises and and prophecies contained in the Old Testament scriptures. Promises that ultimately had to do with the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. Promises such as the, the offspring of the woman, Eve crushing the head of the the serpentine power of evil, an offspring that ultimately would be the one through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed, promises about a child of promise who would be born in a miraculous fashion, who would be God with us, Emmanuel, promises about a forever king ruling over a forever kingdom who would himself be the son of God on high, promises concerning a child who would run the government, as mighty God, uh, uh, the Ancient of Days, who would be the Son of Man; that the Lord of Glory, who would be a suffering servant; promises concerning a priest who would perfectly intercede between God and us; a King who would conquer all His and our enemies; a Prophet who would dis- who would declare His word to us perfectly, and countless other promises countless other prophecies throughout the entire Old Testament that have been, are being, or will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There is a reason, my friends, that the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 said that all the promises of Scripture find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's why we we have confidence this morning that the promises are true and the story is true. Because Jesus' is suffering his death, his resurrection. It serves to make sense of so much of the Old Testament and demonstrates that he is in fact exactly who he claimed to be, both Lord and Christ. This meal too tells you that that those promises of the Old Testament, that, that they found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and simple crackers that are broken, poured out juice that points us to the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus. Every time we come to this table, we have a tangible reminder, indeed, a a tangible form of assurance that these things are true. And because these things are true, because these past promises point us to future glory that sustains us in the midst of our present suffering, we need to hope. It's right to hope, you know. It's not a fool's thing to hope in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus really is making whole things new. And that that really will sustain you. Even in the midst of your arguing with God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me please? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do... Glory in our Redeemer Jesus Christ. That his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, the great truths of Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ is coming again, that these things are so, they are true, it's real. Not because a preacher has said it, not even because of some experience, but this all happened in real time. And it's going to happen again in real time. And because the story is true, we can trust in your promises of future glory that we will be made new and this world will be made new and all that is wrong that's so off so strong will actually be rooted out of your world, King Jesus. We long for the day when this world shall belong wholly and completely and obviously to you and the nations of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. But until that day, we will praise And we will rejoice in Jesus, our living hope. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.